1: In the words of the trade-offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system. Just trade-offs. You can find trade-offs wherever you listen to your podcasts.
2: Well, I have you loud and clear. <laughs> hello. Hello. hello, hello,
3: hello. Welcome. Welcome
4: <laughs> Science.
1: And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, space,
4: time, the brain, life, the universe.
1: This week we're spreading festive cheer as we get ready for Christmas, all in one hour.
5: That's right. Coming up, we've got the physics of carol singing. We're firing up the Christmas snacks, literally, and like them or
1: loathe them, we chat Brussels sprouts. I'm Georgia Mills. I'm Chris Smith, and this is the Naked Scientists Christmas Special. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by (laughs) UKfast.co.uk. Now here to help us to scoff some mince pies and to deck the halls are our Christmas guests and Philippe Bougeau is a neuroscience PhD student at Cambridge University. He's going to be taking us through how our brains cope with Christmas. What's the best present you've ever had, Philippe?
2: I have to say it's probably a Nintendo Wii. What um, did you play on it? I don't remember. All I remember is that I hit myself really hard on one of the pieces of furniture in my house and I couldn't walk for about two weeks. Oh
1: right, It's a great Christmas present then.
2: It was great, <laughs> but I loved it for that. Small moment before the injury, unfortunately.
1: Hugh Hunt is an expert in engineering dynamics and vibration. Is at Cambridge University as well. So, Hugh, other end of the spectrum, worst present. Worst
6: present. Uh, well, I remember there was something that was under the Christmas tree that was full of water, and <laughs> it leaked. It was a disaster. One of those things.
1: Oh dear, that's a funny present to give someone for Christmas. But well, was... mind you, are from Australia? It's know, some well, bits that's... of Australia, a bit should of water, aren't they? So maybe but that's.
6: But well, that's that's right. Things leak under the covers. <laughs>
1: David Hankey is a researcher in plant development and ecology. He's going to be talking to us about the perfect Christmas tree and also Brussels sprouts later. So can you beat that, David, on the present list?
7: For worst presents, certainly, yes. I remember one year when everybody gave me bath salts uh, in the days when you used to be given bath salts. Are they trying to tell you something? They, I, I, this is what I worried about. Yes.
1: <laughs> Sitting next to David, so clearly he solved the bath salts-inspired problem, is Alex Farrell, who's the founder of a company that helps you to choose the best ever Christmas present, we hope. So what What's the best present you've ever received, Alex?
4: Oh, I think the, a, a good present for me would be anything from a lie-in, you know, a cup of tea in bed would be pretty good, a few hours off. But actually, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an identical twin, so for the first few decades, any, any gift that was just solely mine rather than shared would be up there as, a, as the best present. So,
1: Well, Alex will reveal what her technology is later. Georgia?
5: Well, we're very glad to have you all with us. So the first thing we need to do for Christmas is put up our Christmas tree. Sadly, we've just got a plastic one, but there's nothing quite like a real Christmas tree, although their needles do make a bit of a mess of the carpet. So, David, why do they drop their needles everywhere?
7: In brief, it's an emergency crisis response to the loss of the roots, and it's not simply because you've deprived them of water. Putting the Christmas tree, after you've chopped the roots off, into... A bucket of water makes absolutely no difference to shedding the leaves. Shedding needles is a burnt-earth panic response to a loss of contact with the roots, so the needles panic. It's a very active, energy-dependent process. New enzymes have to be made to break down the base of the needle Now, more usually this happens because of pathogen or herbivore attack that separated a a, a section of the tree or a branch from the roots. Now, the needles contain all the nutrients that the attacker is after. There's not much worth eating in the rest of the tree, frankly. So they're ditched in order to starve the enemy.
5: Oh, wow. I'm feeling quite guilty now about sending all these Christmas trees into panic mode when we put them in our house. So is there anything we can do to keep their needles on?
7: Uh, No. Nobody's (laughs) ever found anything. The only thing we can do about it is a bit of selective breeding because there's a lot of variation out there in tree populations in terms of their resistance to needle abscission, as it's called.
1: Well, can I ask a question then? Because you said it's an active process, David, that mm-hmm. the tree has to make an enzyme to then literally sever the needle from the tree. Absolutely so if, right. if you were to, say, steam treat your tree at a really high temperature with steam and, and kill it, yep. would the needle then stay stuck on, they albeit the tree is dead? Would. They would oh, well, there you go. Out. That's the answer then. You just have to steam
7: treat your tree. Yeah. You need a big steamer. But You need a big steamer, and the, the, the whole thing might start to smell after a relatively <laughs> short period of time. I mean, I, I would just what worry at what you do for. with a cooked Christmas tree. You <laughs> do know you? what happens to needles when you cook them? So
6: you're saying it doesn't matter whether you water, put the tree in water or not? not,
7: not, not well, slightly. You can slow down the process to a very limited extent. And really only if you've got one of these... Types that shed their needles very quickly. Then putting it in water will slow it down. But if you you've got the type that has high resistance to needle abscission, that's going to give you sixty days. It doesn't matter. It won't mm. make any difference.
5: And so we're obviously getting through our Christmas trees quite quickly. So what's the best way to grow a Christmas tree?
7: Well, very important because Christmas trees tend to be grown on extremely poor soil. So you need a nice fungus in there that is going to be able to recover scarce mineral resources, especially phosphorus in the soil, and relay them on to your tree.
5: Oh, so there's a fungus underground sort of helping the tree grow?
7: There is indeed. And the tree is helping the fungus by supplying it with the carbohydrates that it needs for energy.
5: That's very kind of it. Does it get anything in return?
7: Yes, it gets sugars from the tree. and, And so all its energy and carbon supplies come from the tree. They live together.
5: If this fungi uh, helps the the tree nice and green, what about making sure it's that nice Christmas tree shape we all know and love?
7: Well, it depends what you mean by nice, Chris. This is a very subjective judgment here. If you <laughs> if you're German or on the continent, and then your nice Christmas tree shape consists of tiers of horizontal branches with a big space in between, because you want to hang your decks. Into the spaces in between. And up until the middle of the 20th century, almost all Christmas trees grew like this. Now, growers reported a a change in the shape progressively, but eventually we sussed it out that uh, when you increase, you you misspray these trees with ammonium nitrate as a supply of nitrogen, you get a big increase in the level of a hormone called cytokinins. And it's the cytokinins that make lots of. Otherwise, dormant buds grow out and become branches. So you fill in those spaces with lots of branches. You end up with a bushy tree as a result. And Actually, bushy trees are much favoured by the Americans because they prefer to wrap their decks around the outside of the tree. So they're very happy
2: with the new bushy trees. Well, Philippe is, is
1: nodding uh, in agreement. So, so you like a nice bushy tree?
2: Yes, they need a very, I wouldn't say leafy, but spiny tree, I guess. Although, I was thinking as you were talking, it seems very complicated to have... A Christmas tree, like you need to actually grow it and you need the fungus and everything. Couldn't we just have a bunch of maple trees? I mean, not stereotypically Canadian or anything, but, but it, what if we cut maple trees and all have a Christmas tree made of maple and maple syrup at the same time? Yeah, why do we have to have Christmas trees, David? Oh um, does that come it, Because
7: from? of Prince Albert, really. I mean, he brought them over from Germany. I think what you need is to bring in an evergreen. It's the magic of evergreens because they are still green when everything else is dead and looks awful. We actually use a lemon tree. It grows in a pot and the leaves of the lemon tree, as you will know, are one of the only citrus plants that actually has the oil, the essential lemon oil in the leaves. What you can do is trim the leaves off and you put wrap them around your sea bass on Christmas Eve and wrap it up with foil and cook it and you have the most delicious Christmas Eve meal. Get a lemon tree. Don't bother with a. <laughs> don't bother with a spruce tree.
5: Maybe I will next year. So thank you, David. So we got the Christmas tree ready, even if it is in panic mode. So the next step, of course, is to decorate.
1: Now, what comes next for most of us is a trip up into the attic to dust off the decorations and to get those lovely twinkling lights out. And you are absolutely sure, if you're anything like me, that you put them away in a highly organised, nice, neat pile last year. And of course, you get them out. What have you got? Huge, great tangle. It's not rocket science, it's
6: just physics, isn't it, Hugh? Isn't this the case? We have entropy to blame? Uh, Well, yeah, so this this idea of tangled tangled mess of things is disorder. If you've got things really nicely ordered, then so long as you're very careful, they stay ordered. But once they become disordered, it's really hard to, to get them back again. So, for instance, if you spill some water or if you break a plate... So this idea of entropy, is it's a measure of disorder. And if you've got something like a gas, like air, then it turns out that the equations to calculate the entropy are not too difficult. But when it comes to Christmas lights, the equations aren't quite so so straightforward. Say I've got a balloon here. I can blow it up. And the air is in that balloon... And if I'm very careful the way I let it out, I could get all the energy to come out carefully. Now, if I'm careful about it, I can can get a lot of the energy back again. But if I blow up my balloon, and if I'm not so careful, I've just lost all the energy all in once. And what's happened is that it's a very disordered way of getting the air out of the balloon. So can, so can you explain can you to me what
1: why what this has got to do with my christmas
6: lights well so what you've got to think about is that you 've got to be careful, like with the balloon, if you want to get things back how they were to start with, it does take you have to be careful and entropy is can be measured, but you can use common sense and be very careful, wrap your lights up carefully so that you get them back but many to people how will say were. that
1: they did wrap their lights up carefully and i mean is what you're saying that Basically, the whole the whole system is that there's one organised way to have your lights, but there are many many ways to have your lights in a disorganised way, and so the odds are that they're not going to stay organised for very long unless you take enormous steps to, to make sure.
6: Well, the worst thing you can do is to put more than one set of lights into the same bag, because sure as oh yeah, spin there done lights, so yeah. they're going to get tangled up with each other, and that's the worst bit.
5: Well, speaking of, I, we actually have some tangled lights here that the Naked Scientist producers have found in their house, so I thought for a fun Christmas activity we could um, use you guys to help us untangle our lights and we have a little competition. Whoever Is that the only can...
6: reason you have it along?
5: <laughs> I mean, yeah, pretty much.
1: <laughs> so everyone's getting
6: a set of fairy lights. God,
2: this
1: one's terrible. <laughs> but so she everyone is, f- is busy beavering away trying to get these <laughs> lights untangled and some people are having some success. F- Philippe, you're looking like you've d- been reasonably successful there. You've got most of the knots out of your... T- these These genuinely just came out of people's cupboards, didn't they, George? I mean, it, these these were just found like this. Alex is m- looks like you're making more tangles. Oh, well, no, I've well, nearly done one of them,
4: yeah.
1: She's nearly got one big tangle. Hugh's got the worst. I, well, the
4: thing
1: you've is actually that... added, added disorder to yours. <laughs> I a,
6: I, but the thing is, is that... I can't find the bloody end. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the thing you were saying, Chris. If the chain is really long, then there's many, many more end states. If you've got a really short piece of string, it's really quite hard to tangle a short piece of string. David's
1: there
0: first. Oh, he but he one did have the
6: shortest one. strand of luck. Did I? Yeah. No.
1: There we go. Phillips, so, as well.
6: <laughs> <laughs> so all I would say is that once they're untangled, you've got to get something like an old cereal box or something and wrap them around the outside of the cereal box. Give them a, something that they can stay attached to, but stuffing into a bag is just bound to end up... They'll, they'll be exactly like this again next year. So the bottom
1: line is that entropy is all about things becoming more disorganised. There are lots of ways that the fairy lights can arrange themselves to be disorganised. There are very few ways they can arrange themselves to be organised. Everyone's still going at this, Georgia. And as a result... Unless you take steps to make sure they stay well organised, then you're going to have trouble, Hugh. So the, to, 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 tie, to put them round a piece of cardboard or something, which, which confers order on them and stops them having those degrees of freedom. Philippe know, has I now wrapped see. fairy lights that are flashing. I know, I, I saw that.
6: <laughs> Sorry, carry on. And I just, I just wanted. So um, no, it's all about God. You are very sparkly. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> It's all very well to have a system, but if if the person who finds the lights in the following year doesn't know your system, well <laughs> oh, that is true. That is true. Then it, it doesn't. Get There's a better.
1: great gift idea in this, Alex.
4: Self-untangling fairy well, lights. Well, fairy lights
1: that don't get tangled, and then and I'm then some it. system that uh, stops them tangling up again, <laughs> exactly. that confers order and reverses the effects of entropy. Absolutely. And um, everyone has untangled their lights, so that saved you a big job, Georgia. <laughs> In this month's Space Boffins podcast, Apollo 15 command module pilot Al Warden describes the first spacewalk in deep space. I can remember looking out the hatch for the first time and
7: saying, hey, this is really cool, I'm outside. That
0: is really the most unbelievable, remarkable
7: thing. From Cassini and Voyager to the eclipse and genetically engineered
1: astronauts, we look back at 2017 and talk about billionaire plans for the future of spaceflight. Join me, Richard Hollingham, with Sue Nelson for Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Still to come, what technology might we be unwrapping over Christmas? And we'll also be unpicking the physics of Christmas caroling.
5: So our Christmas tree is up and decorated, so now it's time to do some Christmas shopping. But how do we choose what to buy and are the shops pulling on your strings? Philippe, why is it so hard to make a decision when you're shopping?
2: Now, first of all, keep in mind that you're taking advice from someone currently wearing Christmas lights. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's really hard to make a decision basically because of the way the brain is made. So as opposed to a computer, which can store enormous amounts of data, the brain is really powerful because it takes a lot of shortcuts. And one of these shortcuts is basically that the brain will always try to represent the lowest amount of information at a time. And the way it does that is by using references. And these references are always from memory. And that's a really efficient thing that the brain does because when it uses references, it only has to encode a tiny difference in value. And so our brain is really good at making these tiny choices, but the issue with making these choices then becomes as soon as you switch that reference, then your economic rationale breaks down. And I have a really good example for this and how you can make choices really difficult. Um, Think about the cinema, for example. You can have, let's say, a small popcorn or a large popcorn. And Let's say the small one is three pounds, the large one is seven. Most people in this case would go with the small popcorn, because it's three pounds, and you can probably buy two for the price of the large one. But if you reverse the context and add an extra choice, which makes it a lot more difficult, you add a medium, and you say, let's say, the medium is six pounds instead of the seven or the three that makes the seven-pound large one a lot more appealing. So you've only added a decoy, which we call neuroscience, and all of a sudden you've switched people's preferences. So choices are really good, um, and you're very good at maximizing these choices in different contexts, but unfortunately, because we have so many choices in so many contexts, then we actually aren't that rational after all.
5: I see and I know the, um, the Christmas shops sometimes exploit this and you went Christmas shopping with fellow naked scientist Lewis Thompson earlier in the week so let's hear how you guys got on.
2: The brain isn't the best computer we can think of. What it tries to do is always simplify, simplify, simplify. So it's going to try and adapt its range when it codes values of the decisions we're trying to make. And it's going to try and adapt that around a central value that we build around our memories. So we call that a reference, for example. From this reference point, your brain is going to try and compute what is gains and what is losses. And so what the store is going to try and push on you is this idea that you're winning all the time. And it's going to set that from a reference. So if you have a reference that, let's say, a two-pound pack of strawberries, and what you can do from there is basically reduce the price and say it's on sale. So the person feels like they're winning because they're spending less money, they're keeping more money, and they're getting the strawberries in addition. If I see the wine is on sale, should we go and get some? You see, even when you know, you still fall for it. Let's go. So we're at the wine section now. There's quite a lot of choice, though, and I don't know much about wine. How is my brain making this decision? There is a lot of choice in the grocery store at the moment, and that is a big problem that people have also. And that's one of the situations where your brain is going to try to use the shortcuts um, that I was talking about earlier, where you try and build a reference with your memories, um, and you try to use different markers that you can use in decisions in the past to try and make the best out of your current choice. And so one of those examples would be price price for wine is a very very big indicator because regardless of the quality of the wine people will tend to associate a certain value just based on the price. And that's actually been shown in a lot of neuroscience studies, where if you increase the price of a wine that you've tested earlier, you actually see a brain signal increase in value sections of the brain. So it's not just psychology at this point. It's not just behavior. You actually have a biological basis for it. And so what people try to do is usually go with a wine that's either the second cheapest option or the second most expensive option. Because you don't want to go with either extreme, but you want to still use this reference to guide your decision. And that's one thing that grocery stores will try to do. They'll put the average price at eye level, and then everything else will be either above that or under that. And you'll use that reference to then compute your gains or your losses and make your choice.
5: So why does buying things sometimes make us feel pretty good about ourselves when we've been shopping?
2: So the answer to that is... Contrarily to popular belief, not dopamine. It's actually what we call endorphins. Uh, Endorphins are opiates that you have in your brain that are naturally released. Think of opium, for example. It's based from that drug. And opiates make you feel pleasure. And that's what you derive when you buy something. But... When Christmas comes, you also have the anticipation effect. And anticipation combined with dopamine, which is now its role, is actually a lot more powerful than pleasure itself. So there's two systems, endorphins and dopamine, that regulate this pleasure and this anticipation of pleasure.
5: Oh, I see. So you're looking forward to this rush you're going to get when you buy something.
2: Exactly. And that's what December is all about. But Philip, have you
1: got all of your gifts then? There's so, a retail expert and psychologist on gift giving. Have you, have you
2: completed the goal of gift And buying? this is when people will realise they probably should not listen to me. Um, I have the advantage that I'm an immigrant. I'm from Canada, which means that, unfortunately, it's really hard to give gifts to Canadians, but also which means that it's really good for my bank account. <laughs> so no, I have not bought yet yet. Are you saying yet. you're just Scrooge? You're just stingy? I wouldn't say that. I would say I'm an expert on decision making. <laughs> Very good. Well, I'll try that on my wife
1: and see how that goes down. <laughs> Sounds like uh, people may need a bit of your help, Alex. So you've got this initiative, you set this up, which is it's all about finding or helping people find gifts.
4: Yeah, I mean, we are on a, a gifting platform and it uses data and relationship data on finding the perfect gift. Because I think these days we live our lives online and we have a big social footprint online and gifting isn't a normal retail experience where you're buying something for yourself it's much more complex than that, you're buying for someone else so there's two different sets of personal data and preference data in there so it's actually a very complex journey buying someone a gift far more complex than people realise just hearing people whether they've done their Christmas shopping the data around it's really interesting around Christmas gifting because certain age segments buy very early so the older generation tend to buy actually in October, the grandparents' have got their gift sorted by then men and women are very common can get close to the bone and be shopping on christmas eve that's not necessarily a gender thing me too exactly (laughs) so there we go we're both in the same segment bigger items bigger gifts are bought quite early on if you haven't bought them by um by the end of october then they've normally gone it's the smaller items that then go later so So the company's
1: called gift wink it is yes how long has it been going
4: so our company's been for about two years and we think actually we can get the perfect gift
1: So how did this start? Was this just your brainchild and you set this up and you've scaled it? What's the story?
4: Well, the story was I used to run a different um, platform. I used to run a tech careers platform, which was a much drier topic. We matched IT professionals with the right job. So I figured actually we could do the same thing with gifts. It's a bit more of an interesting journey because gifts are highly emotional. There's a big emotional investment when you choose a gift for somebody. And the reason why I started it is that I've got a bit of a confession to make. I've got one niece, but I can never remember her birthday and I can never figure out what to buy her.
1: So tell me sort of the user journey or the user story. Someone comes to the website, what happens?
4: We ask you a bit about who you're buying for, their age and gender, what they're into, and then we serve shorter bursts of the perfect gift. So we say, here's the five things your mum will love. And but how does, how does your
1: system know that my mum will love that?
4: It depends on the questions we've asked. So there are age and gender categorisations. The relationship label is quite key, actually. If I'm buying for, say, three different women in my life, say a, a friend of mine, a girlfriend of mine, versus my sister, versus my mum – Even though those are three women I'm buying for of not particularly different age groups, the emotional investment in those three different relationships is significantly different. And the price point is different for a friend versus my mum versus my sister. So actually just the relationship label in itself drives a different segment of gift suggestions. And if you add in then a blend of age and gender data, whether they've got children, whether they haven't got children, what their family groupings look like, then you're halfway towards getting a better gift selection for them.
1: So the system says, right, you're buying for a year old girl and uh, she's interested in this sort of thing It's going to offer you some some options are you then closing the loop you're saying well when we present those options to a potential purchaser they tend to click on these things and not those ones so those must be things that are appealing to, in their mind, a 10-year-old girl, therefore increase the emphasis we place on those in the next sale and the next sale. Is that what you're doing?
4: Interesting, we do. I mean, there are different gifting occasions and motivations. So if I can buy for my own children versus buying for other people's children, if it's a birthday versus a Christmas gift, so the occasion itself is different from a price point perspective, the relationship's different. When we have asked those questions and we serve a list of content to our customers, we then have um, the ability for them to tick and which ones they like as they go along so we know, oh, they're liking that, they're not liking that and we can serve them better match content. So we learn as we go along what they're into and then we can serve them more of what they like and less of what they don't like.
1: So are people really getting a genuine it's a good gift selection, or is it just who you happen to be working with as your supplier? We've today? got,
4: I think, now 8,000 gifts listed, so we've got a lot of gifts. It's important to go and find out what people want. So what's interesting when um, you buy gifts for children, for example, is they tend to be very heavily into a brand, whereas when you're talking about what people are into when they're adults, they tend to be more category-based, so oh, they're really into cooking or they're foodie. or So the labelling's different for ages and genders. So to have a proper, perfect gifting experience, you've got to have discovery brands, mainstream brands. You've actually got to have a blend of everything because buying for children is very different for buying for adults. Eight thousand gifts might sound like a lot, but if they go, well, I'm only into food and only that kind of food because I'm gluten intolerant. Then suddenly you need a you need a lot of inventory on your site. Alex, I'm intrigued. So a lot of people really
5: like cool, brand new tech for Christmas. I know my dad certainly does. So. What's been exciting in tech in 2017? What kind of tech presence do you think people are going to be getting this year?
4: Well, there's some really big branded things that are coming out. There's some new game consoles that are very clever and there's, there's all that kind of stuff. Virtual reality um, will play a big in Christmas gifts this year, I think. You know, you've all seen the headsets, you know, they're getting better and better. So I think there'll be quite a lot of that going around. I've seen some very cool stuff, some drones that you can control with your hand gestures. It's very minority report. Oh, So wow. actually, as you move your hands, the drones move. I think that'll be something on everyone's list, list this year. Yeah, and is, one of is that on
1: your website? Uh,
4: I, I, that's not on our website yet, actually. It's very it high tech. Exactly. <laughs> and one other thing, I was having a look at, um, at what's really significantly innovative at the moment, and um, there's a guy who's very, very close to releasing uh, a car that actually turns into a plane. So you know that kind of you know Back to the Future moment. That's that's you know that's feasibly coming in the next twelve months. And is yeah. that
1: going on your website?
4: I don't think that's quite on there, and I'm not sure it would fit under the tree. But it's definitely one to keep an eye I suppose out for. So it's flying off the shelves. <laughs> it's absolutely flying off the shelves. That one. It's grown. Lovely. Thank you very much, Alex.
8: The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost effective voice, internet, and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk.
5: This is the Naked Scientist Christmas Special. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can find us on Twitter. It's at Naked Scientist, or you can drop us a line on chris at the thenakedscientist.com.
1: The Christmas tree is up, the presents have been bought, gifts decided on, and it's almost time for the big day itself. But whether you sing like a cherub or you screech like a cat, what is Christmas without a few carols? Now, if you hadn't guessed it, we have got a few more guests here with us in the studio. We'll hear more from them in a second. But first,
6: Hugh, how does sound actually work? Well, a sound is all about vibrations in the air. So um, if you think of waves and water or... Well, I've got a, a slinky spring here. I don't know whether you can you can hear this mm, thing. I've got it's, a giant um, one here as well to play got one with. Well. Yep. One end of the slinky spring is attached to a brick, as it happens. And I'm holding the other end on the table... And I'm wobbling the end backwards and forwards, and I'm getting a wave, and it's going at a sort of a speed like one.
1: And just to explain for people at home what we're seeing, so at one end of this long table we're all sitting around, Hugh has a house brick, which he has tied to his slinky spring. He has stretched the slinky spring two or three metres to the other end, and is now shaking the other end, which he's holding, and it is making this wafting motion backwards and forwards in time with the metronome you've got beating on the
6: desk and it's, and it's just one curve but if I double the speed that I'm shaking the end of the slinky so instead of one, 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 two, one, two, one, two.
1: Oh, that's interesting so what we're now seeing is that there's a point roughly in the middle of the slinky which is now not moving but you've got two little waves either side of it going that's up and right. down so, so we've got two waves where previously we had one. So you've doubled the frequency, the rate at which you're doing it, and
6: you've now got twice as many waves. And, I've, and it's, a, it's called a standing wave. And now if I do three times... One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, yes, two, three... Yes, we've got three, three one, points two,
1: three. along the slinky which are now not moving and three little wave lits either side of those unmoving points. And then I, can, point. then I can
6: do four... 1234 1234 1234
1: One, And it's called a standing wave because when I look at this it looks like there is a wave standing still in, exactly. in space. Exactly. So if you wave. think
6: of waves in in water you would you would see the wave moving along in the distance. But a standing wave doesn't appear to be moving at all. These are called harmonics. The first one was the fundamental, then the second harmonic, the third harmonic. So the fundamental is the one, two, three, and that's just shaking back and forth. The The second harmonic is twice as fast. third harmonics three times, fourth harmonics four times. Now if you think of the note on a piano, the note C, then an octave above it is another C, and that's the first harmonics, double the frequency.
1: Right, so that second C is twice as many waves as the first C. That's right.
6: And then the third harmonic is then the G above that. And then the fourth harmonic is then the C above that. And then the fifth is E. Then the sixth is G. Then the seventh is B flat. And I mean, what what we can do with the choir is we can, we can sing them for you, if you like.
1: Ooh, let's do it. <laughs>
6: Sounds so, lovely. So there we go. So we went up to the tenth harmonic there and each one of those was progressively increasing in the number of cycles of that uh, slinky spring. If you like.
1: Now why does it sound nice? Because it's perfectly possible to get them I presume to sing something that doesn't sound nice. So what's the difference between nice and nasty?
6: Well when you have a general sound you can decompose it into these harmonics. So that's why a Different voices might sound different or a French horn might sound different from a clarinet, might just sound different from a violin. But they all basically have this same harmonic structure. But one thing that is really weird is that um, Bach figured out that um, you didn't have to get these harmonics exactly right, that our ear is quite forgiving. And it turns out rather curiously that if you you start off with a certain note and if you double it and you double it and you double 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 it and double it and double it, You could start off with the same note and do one and a half times it, one and a half times, one and a half, one and a half. And you ought to get to exactly the same note again after a while. But it doesn't work. The maths of it doesn't work. And it turns out that no matter how we might try, it is impossible to get perfect tuning. And yet beautiful music can be made by um, instruments that we can't get So, this is, uh,
1: this is a, an artifact of the human auditory system that we like that particular combination of sounds and we don't like it when the multiples don't add up correctly.
6: Well, I, it's something that we, ha- we have got, we've got used to certain sounds and then other, other cultures have got used to um, other sounds. And we, we, we can sometimes find music from other cultures just not particularly musical.
1: Hugh Hunt, thank you very much. And thank you also to the wonderful singers from Cambridge University's Music Society.
5: All this music is quite exciting and Christmas wouldn't really be Christmas without the kids being up at the crack of dawn with excitement. So, Philippe, why do we look forward to Christmas?
2: So the short answer to that is that it's all about memories. I was saying earlier that in December... It's basically an entire process of remembering and anticipating what Christmas is going to be. It's a reference-dependent system, if you want. And the whole idea of Christmas is basically in your head. When you think about it, December is amazing. But then when comes Christmas Day itself, it's never as hyped up as what you've painted it to be. And that's, I think that's be- the hangover, Philip. That's partly to blame, isn't it? Uh, after Christmas. or yeah.
1: Do you have that problem?
2: (laughs) I can't say I have, unfortunately, but everybody's looking at me oddly, so maybe I'm the only one. But um, the big principle you have to know about the brain is that cells that fire together, wire together. And that (laughs) means that basically every cell in your brain that fires at the same time, at some point will be associated. It's a very simplistic way of looking at the brain, but that's a bit of how memories work. And so whenever you hear a choir singing, you'll think about your childhood memories, you'll think about the pleasure that gave you, and all of these circuits are actually firing. And that's what Christmas is. You're remembering all these things. And you're anticipating it, which means that dopamine is firing, and dopamine is actually very exciting. And what happens is that children have an amazing dopamine response. And this dopamine response is actually uncontrollable by the rest of the brain that's developing. So children look crazy at Christmas, and they are actually going crazy because they just can't contain this dopamine. So it's not just the E numbers? It's not not just the numbers, no. It's really your children are going nuts.
5: I do remember driving my parents nuts because I'd wake up at about 4am on Christmas and like, is it ready to start the day yet? So why does this make it hard to sleep? Why do people sort of wake up really early with excitement?
2: Yeah, so dopamine's main effect, like I was saying, is anticipation. You're predicting a reward and then you're going to get a tiny prediction error, which is basically going to correct your prediction via this dopamine signal. And this influences your attention. It's going to wake up your brain to make sure that you're planning and predicting as best as you could. So it's always going to tone down the sleepy parts of your brain if you want. And then especially for children, they have to infer everything that's going to happen. Whereas we have the advantage of having lived before and having memories that we can use to compute this prediction. So children actually need to use their dopamine and a crazy amount of attention which wakes up their brain. So that's probably why you were awake at 4am in the morning.
5: <laughs> Not anymore. 4pm now, I think. I get up. <laughs> and so when we're sort of excited for Christmas, it's also quite can be quite a stressful day, I suppose. So what's going in our brain with that as well?
2: So anticipation is great. But unfortunately, something that happens, like you said, is stress and stress is caused by it. Well, it's caused a result of it is going to be the release of adrenaline of cortisol and that happens when we're meeting family that happens when we have to think about gifts and that's actually a really big stressor and it's going to stop you from sleeping and it's also toning your ability to recall and your memories a bit lower also so the stress is going to be a big issue for those people that are trying to buy all their gifts at the same time that are going to try and remember all of their family names especially if the mother-in-law is coming over that'll be a big big driver for
1: cortisol stress hormone release (laughs) yes
2: yes
5: So get your presents in advance. Don't forget your mother-in-law's name. Any other tips for avoiding stress at Christmas?
2: Yes, if you can make a list of the things you have to do, that way you don't have to remember them because we can only remember at one time about six to seven things that we can process actively. So try to make a list of it. That way you can remember or use a service that finds gifts for you.
5: And make a list and check it twice, of course, <laughs> Philippe, thank you.
1: Well, now for the big event, and that's the food. The turkey's been cooking for hours, someone's already pinched a few of your pigs in blankets, and yet somehow you've still got room to scoff down a few festive treats. Well, Izzy Clark went off to the Department of Chemistry at Cambridge University to meet Chris Brackstone to explore how food gives us energy. And I have to warn you, a few gingerbread men and some jelly babies did get harmed making this programme.
9: OK, so we've got a large test tube and that's got potassium chlorate in it which gives us a source of oxygen, and a large burner underneath to make it molten and boil. That's going to give us our heat source and our oxygen, and our poor little jelly baby is going to give us our sugar. If we scale it up, what happens in our own bodies, we use sugars and our own internal heat source and the oxygen that we breathe in to get energy from the glucose and the carbohydrates.
3: Turns out, when you drop a jelly baby into molten potassium chlorate, a rather violent reaction kicks off. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I mean, there's nothing left of it. No. (laughs) So it started off with a slow burner, and then all of a sudden it got this amazing purple light. This isn't exactly what's going on inside our body, is it? Because we don't sort of all burst into flames when we have a jelly baby.
9: We don't, no, but we do get a certain amount of energy from the sugar, and uh, there's a whole process going on. We're like a little chemical factory. Um, We've obviously got far less oxygen than the atmosphere that we're using. We're a lot cooler and we ourselves need to slow the whole process down anyway. Um, so there's various biological processes going on that slows that whole process down and lets the energy release more slowly.
3: So the processes going on in our body to release energy are a lot slower. And this exploding deli baby showed me just how much energy is in these sweeties, even if, thankfully, we don't go up in flames. So which Christmas calorific snack releases its energy in the most spectacular manner? We lined up the treats and put it to the test. First up were some gingerbread men, and for this demo, Chris had prepared some liquid oxygen to speed up that burning process.
9: I'm going to pour that over the gingerbread men. And are you ready?
3: I'm ready. Let's see how this goes. then. That was quite the send off, my goodness. So we had a huge orange flame right in the middle of that. Um, our poor little gingerbread men have been left—they're rather barbecued.
9: They are uh, plenty of calories, I think.
3: Plenty of calories. Okay, so I guess we'll move on to the next one. See how Christmas cake does.
9: I've never burned Christmas cake before. So...
3: So it's not as an intense flame as the gingerbread men. It was more of a a slow burner right round the edges, and it seems to me that it's just the icing, the really sugary icing and marzipan that is really taking up in this flame. Indeed, it definitely does, doesn't it? So the gingerbread men are still in the lead at this rate. Let's try our third and final test: the well-loved mince pie. Oh, and they're off! Oh my goodness! Got little bits of pastry flying off at different corners. The flames going, and sort of lots of different blues and greens and yellows and oranges. And those mince pies have been absolutely incinerated. <laughs> Why was that flame so much bigger than the other two that we saw?
9: Most of the moisture's gone out of them, so it is pretty much just pastry and well, whatever filling was. In there to start Was
3: with. in there, certainly in not there, there not
9: much left, is there? They're very reminiscent of the last time I tried to
4: bake anything to bake.
1: Note to self, don't let Izzy near your kitchen. So, Alex, can tech save the day in the kitchen when you're trying to prepare your Christmas dinner in a hurry?
4: Well, I saw two really cute new bits of tech recently that I think would make um, your Christmas Day a bit easier. The first was an intelligent cocktail-making piece of kit that makes your favourite cocktail... That's in that... me! <laughs> ...in under five seconds...
1: Oh no, I'm not that quick.
4: Exactly. So that's the first bit I thought was really, really cute. And the second bit, and now this is just for fun, was a butter knife that uses your body temperature to cut the butter if it's cold straight from the fridge, which I just thought was genius. So this
1: is a knife at room temperature and it cuts butter out the fridge. I mean, what's... What, it uses that... your
4: body temperature to cut the butter straight from the fridge. It's something <laughs> insane. like money for old
1: rope. <laughs> I don't know. It's like it's, you hold a knife and warm it up and cut butter with it.
4: It's probably one of those things that you get and you think, I don't know how I lived I without be, it. I bet
1: you owned one of those lock di that you got for christmas which you sort of slide that thing out and this long prong comes out and you put it in your lock in your car to de-ice your lock on a cold day i, haven't, you have one of them? I
4: haven't got one of those but if i was going to prioritize one of the two i think i'd go for the cocktail uh,
1: i owned good.
6: one i never used it I've, I've been dying for a cold go. enough day when the lock froze <laughs> on my car i could actually use it here so presumably that butter knife it must be a, a really good metal with a really good thermal conductivity like silver so maybe that explains that in the old days butter knives were made of silver
4: oh, there we go was it made of silver I'll have to look that up. I'm sure it wasn't because it didn't look like it cost the earth. So I'm assuming it wasn't made of silver. Well, but... well
6: maybe it's made of something like sort of uranium or plutonium. Or so <laughs> <How heat>. highly <laughs> likely, Hugh. Yeah, yeah. worrying.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, we now get to the most controversial part of any Christmas dinner, and that's Brussels sprouts. So, David, what are Brussels sprouts and why do they look so weird, firstly?
7: Well, Brussels sprouts are the dormant, swollen side buds <laughs> along the stem Of a relative of the cabbage, but because they're an overwintering structure, they're completely dormant, and that's neat because it means that after we pick them, they're going to stay in a kind of pristine state because they're they're not metabolizing, they're not going to go downhill. They were achieved as a result of selective breeding. Normally, of course, the wild cabbage overwinters uh, because the terminal shoot turns into this big bud, single bud, like our cultivated cabbages are larger versions of these. But if you're a breeder, you can transform the plant. It just so happens that the Brussels sprout has this long stem. And then that astonishing helical arrangement of the little green buttons with the spiraling leaf stalk stuck out there makes the field of Brussels sprouts look like a kind of alien landscape. I mean, they... They're, they are remarkable things.
1: You said that they were the product of selective breeding so when do you think was the first christmas at which we saw brussels sprouts on the table then oh
7: my goodness um well t- there is a kind of roman a, a rumor that the romans had them the first written down in a 16th century document and then there's records of them for sale in early medieval times in in the low countries in around brussels i mean in fact which is why we Funny call enough. them brussels yeah. sprouts so but they, no they they go back they go back a long way.
5: I personally am not a fan of the Brussels sprout, the Brussels. but okay. I know many people are. So why are they so controversial? Why do so many people love them and so many people hate them?
7: Well, the difference has to do with your genes, with your genetic makeup. So sprouts contain uh, an isothiocyanate. These are very nasty chemicals, which is called sulforaphane, And sulforaphane is got an extra sulfur in it and it's the reason why if you overcook sprouts you get that smell of rotten eggs because the sulfur is is released in a reduced form some people have the gene that encodes uh, a receptor a sensor that interacts with sulforaphane and gives you the bitter taste and other people are missing that gene and so they don't taste it
5: I see, so whether you like sprouts or not, it's all in your DNA. Thanks very much, David.
1: Now, as most people know, Brussels sprouts can also have an unfortunate effect on the human digestive tract. Sarah Costa Perry.
10: Every Christmas, one vegetable divides opinion Brussels sprouts. Some of us love them, some of us hate them. But eating them can have some <coughs> embarrassing consequences.
0: <coughs>
10: but what actually is flatulence? Well, some of it is caused by swallowed air. Some of this swallowed air comes back up again as a burp, but any that doesn't can pass through the digestive tract and emerge again at the other end in the usual tuneful fashion. But most of the gas that ends up as flatulence is actually formed fresh inside our intestines by the colonies of bacteria that live there as a normal part of their microbial metabolism. They pump out variable volumes of nitrogen, methane, carbon dioxide and hydrogen. These are thankfully all odourless and largely harmless gases, although hydrogen and methane are quite combustible, as some party pranksters armed with a lighter and a convenient episode of wind will attest to. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, some of the other gaseous products of bacterial digestion are much less easy on the olfactory system. Hydrogen sulphide reeks of rotten eggs and methylmacaptan, which stinks of mouldy cabbages, is the same stuff that's deployed by skunks as part of their repellent arsenal. But why are some foods far more fartogenic than others? As a rule, foods that trigger flatulence are those that can't be completely broken down in the stomach or small intestine. This means that partially digested foodstuffs then make their way into the colon where they can feed a large bowel bacterial banquet with predictable odiferous effects. And this is where the sprouts come in. Sprouts, along with onions, beans and dairy products, are hard to digest in the stomach and small intestine because our bodies can't produce the enzymes needed to break down some of the chemical components they contain. The main culprit in sprouts is a complex sugar called raffinose, which is also found in cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, kale and in fact all members of the brassica family of vegetables. Raffinose is broken down by an enzyme called alpha-galactosidase, But as we don't make this enzyme in our guts, the raffinose, together with other complex sugars, arrive in the large intestine. Some of the bowel bacteria are armed with the necessary chemical knives and forks to break these sugars down, but in the process they churn out hydrogen, methane and carbon dioxide. So that's why sprouts make you produce gas, but why the particularly pungent smell that you often get as an unwelcome addition to the Christmas table? Well, one thing that all brassicas also have in common is that they're full of sulphur-containing defensive chemicals. They're there to deter animals from feeding on their leaves and are also what cause the strong and sometimes bitter flavours of these vegetables that put some people off eating them altogether. And it's these sulphur-containing chemicals that the bacteria turn into hydrogen sulphide and mercaptan. Added in small amounts to the bulky sugar-fuelled fart gas already being produced, these gases are offenders that can clear a room in seconds. (coughs) But is there a way of solving the problem? Unfortunately, some people are just more prone to producing their own airborne toxic events owing to the unique community of bacteria with which they're colonised. Some guts are just more fart-friendly, you could say. And if this is the case for you, then perhaps Buck Weimer of Pueblo, Colorado can help. He won an Ig Nobel Prize in 2001 for his invention of underwear that contains a removable filter to help soak up any nasty niffs. For those who don't like the sound of charcoal-stuffed pants, there are some enzyme-containing dietary supplements that can help break down the complex sugars, reducing the personal fart risk. But fart experts agree there is no surefire way to prevent those Brussels sprouts sounding a bum note on Boxing Day. Mm. Merry Christmas.
1: Sarah Castor-Perry, well, moving swiftly on, that's the food covered, but what about ending the exhausting day with a little tipple? A lot of us certainly are doing this, and Britain's in fact bought a record-breaking 47 million bottles of gin this year. And gin derives its flavour from juniper berries. Izzy Clark enthusiastically volunteered to visit master distiller Will Lowe at the Cambridge Distillery to see how to make gin.
8: This is a process whereby the flavouring is achieved by redistillation. So instead of just filling up a vat, you fill up a still, uh, which is a large pot, if you will. Fill that up with ethanol and water, and then you put juniper into that pot, and you boil it. Then on top of the pot, you have this sort of swan's neck-shaped tube where the vapour path will follow, then forces it through a condenser, which is very cold, brings that vapour back into a liquid. The liquid is predominantly juniper-flavoured, All of the flavour has got into the liquid through distillation, so you can call that a London Dry Gin.
3: Now, we're standing here right in front of the lab at the Cambridge Distillery. It's quite an exciting, almost mad scientist lab. We've got these lovely bulbous glasses, ones filled with those look-like rose petals that are just... Spinning around. So something tells me the usual process is not exactly what's going on here.
8: That's right. So we use a process called vacuum distillation. And very simply put, at lower atmospheric pressures, you also lower the boiling points of liquids. So famously, if you were to scale Mount Everest, you'd be 8,848 meters above sea level, and water there would boil at just 69 degrees Celsius instead of 100. That's a long way to go to prove a point. So we use very small vessels in which we can control the atmospheric pressure by using vacuum pumps and digital vacuum gauges so we can control the pressure and therefore boiling point to within one thousandth of a a bar of pressure and what that means is that we can find the ideal temperature and pressure for every individual botanical so as you rightly say we've got rose petals there the normal boiling point for ethanol is 78 degrees just above 78.3 and if you take rose petal and cook it at that temperature you just destroy the flavor so instead what we do is bring the temperature right down by bringing the atmospheric pressure right down giving us this beautiful fresh flavour that would be unachievable using traditional methods.
3: So how many gins overall are you making here? <laughs>
8: 1,236 at the moment and I know that sounds like a lot but part of what makes us completely unique is that we are the world's first gin tailor and so if you wanted your own gin this is the place you come to have that become a reality.
3: Do you want to taste it right here? I mean yes, Now, we didn't quite have time to make a gin specifically devoted to the naked scientists, and I'm not quite sure I want to know what that would taste like. But Will did show me one of the most unusual gins at the distillery, anti gin.
8: There are some species of ants that have a very definite citrusy flavour to them. Every gin has some kind of citrus quality within it. It's what makes gin so refreshing. The idea was to try and create a gin, but where we don't use any citrus whatsoever and replace the entire citrus ingredient with ants. The ant that we're using here is formica rufa, and it is that formica that gives its name to formic acid. So formic acid, when it was first isolated, was isolated through the distillation of ants. This is about 400 years ago. So we're not the first people to distill ants, but certainly we're the first people to do it uh, with a view of making gin. So what we start with is ants and ethanol. And this is what it looks like.
3: Will has just brought over a really large bulbous vase with a nice tap at the bottom and lots of ants floating around inside it. So... These aren't the sort of ants you'd find in your back garden. They, they're a bit bigger, aren't they?
8: This is the redwood ant. And the way that these guys defend themselves and decommunicate is to spray formic acid. If you imagine the ant that you would find in your backyard and multiply it by about three or four, then that gives you an idea of the scale that we're operating on. So what we want to do is to capture that. If you try and effectively scare these guys, they'll start biting. And not only is that painful for you, and it is painful, but it also means that they're getting rid of the formic acid that we want to keep.
3: You sound like you're speaking from experience with that pain. Yeah,
8: from very itchy, bitter experience, yeah. (laughs) I call them happy ants. So we take them in from the wild, they're not farmed, and we collect them whilst they're on their sort of migratory path, and then we put them directly from forest floor straight into high-strength ethanol, which means an absolutely instant knockout for them. So we isolate the ant and the formic acid in that way, and then we bring that alcohol back up here to Cambridge for distillation.
3: Right, Okay. So are we going to try some now?
8: I think that would be absolutely appropriate, yeah.
3: Gosh, that's really nice. And straight away I've got that, that kick on the front of my tongue. It is quite zesty, and it's really staying on the sides of my tongue.
8: Mm. It has this kind of tingly, persistent quality. That I remember tasting with someone uh, once, and he said it's it's almost like he could feel the ants dancing on his tongue.
3: Yeah, it is. It's really... Tingly is exactly the way to describe it.
8: And the ant is really the headline here. The flavour is predominantly juniper. It's it's got to be. But you can really get the the structure, and on the finish, that ant quality really starts to be far more expressive.
1: Willow from the Cambridge Distillery.
8: Cheers, everyone. So
5: that's all we've got time for. Let's wrap it up by asking for everyone's top science tips to completely smash Christmas. Philippe?
2: I would say start with surrounding yourselves with no (laughs) in-laws. That's
5: very scientific there. Hugh?
2: Well, uh, when you're making
6: a mulled wine, do it in the microwave and do it glass by glass and work out exactly how long you need to heat up the glass so that you don't boil off any of the alcohol. How much do you boil off? Well, hopefully none. (laughs) But uh, normally, if you and and if you do happen to boil off some of the alcohol, then just have a bottle of whiskey at hand just to top it up.
4: Alex, I would say always remember you're going to have some unexpected guest, and completely avoid the shame of of being empty-handed, and have a little extra gift tucked away somewhere just in case. Maybe a little cocktail maker. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Failing that, get get a five-second cocktail down. You exactly, David.
7: The, the best way to get really crisp roasties is to use rapeseed oil because you can cook it at higher temperatures. You can take the oven up to right up to 200 instead of 180. You will get really, really crisp outsides and melting insides. This is my top tip. It's
1: making me hungry at the thought. Thank you very much everyone for uh, being on our programme. You heard there David Hankey and before him Hugh Hunt, Philip Boujo, Alex Farrell, Sarah Costa perry Will Lowe, Chris Braxton. Thank you to Izzy Clark and Lewis Thompson for putting the programme together. Georgia for helping to present it and Thank you at home for listening to us and supporting us. We'll be back next week with a look at 2017's Best Moments and do also join us in 2018. Have a lovely Christmas. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and singing us out, it's the Cambridge University Music Society.
0: Jesus sleep on the hay. The cattle are lowering, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus Down from the sky, and stay by my side until morning
2: is now. <laughs> Felipe Navidad, da-da-da-tum-tum. Philippe Navidad, da-da-da-tum-tum. Philippe Navidad, prospero año y felicidad. Do-do-do-do-do-do. »O Tannenbaum, o
7: Tannenbaum, wie grün sind deine Blätter!« »O Tannenbaum, o Tannenbaum, wie grün sind deine Blätter!« »Du grünst nicht nur zur Sommerzeit, nein, auch im Winter, wenn es schneit!« »O Tannenbaum, o Tannenbaum, wie grün sind deine Blätter!«